Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our presenter today was ordained to the Holy Priesthood on May 12, 1984, and received a Master of Arts degree in Sacred Theology, summa cum laude, the same year. In 1992, Father William Saunders received a Doctor of Philosophy in Education Administration from Catholic University of America. He has served as President and Dean of Notre Dame Graduate School of Christendom College and Pastor at Queen of Apostles Catholic Church in Alexandria, Virginia until 2000 when he was appointed as the founding pastor of Our Lady of Hope Catholic Church in Potomac Falls, Virginia. If you haven't been there, it's a beautiful church. Uh, I highly recommend going. Besides offering a number of great presentations at the Institute of Catholic Culture, he is also a member of the ICC Advisory Board. Please join me in welcoming Father Saunders. Well, it's good to be with you here on this Saturday morning in Lent. So let's first begin with prayer. So in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you to pour forth the Holy Spirit upon us this day as we contemplate the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life so that we may live, who suffered, died, and rose for our salvation. We also remember the great examples of the holy martyrs who too have laid down their life for the faith. May they give us inspiration and fortitude as we continue on our pilgrim way through this life until, by your grace, we may come to everlasting life in heaven. May our blessed Mother Mary, the Mother of the Church, always be with us to pray for us, to guide us, and help us along the way. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Hope, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So it's very good to see all of you here. And Daniel mentioned the diocesan women's retreat, but obviously you made the better choice today. Well, hopefully that's not televised. But anyway, I could be transferred. But it's interesting, you know, time moves by so quickly. And for all of you, and I know some of you here have little children, so it's very hard to take a whole Saturday morning off and really just have time to reflect and be with our Lord. But it's very important because you and I know time moves by so quickly. I was talking to the religious ed kids this week, and I'd ask them, you know, what did you give up for Lent? And this one boy said, well, I haven't thought about that yet. I said, well, you better, we're a week into it. You know? So you don't want to be thinking about it on Good Friday. What will I give up for Lent? So it's good to pause. But what are we doing here? If we go to the Gospel of St. Mark, to chapter 1, 
we read about how Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's been preaching, performing miracles. So we read beginning in verse 32. After sunset as evening drew on, they brought him all who were ill and those possessed by demons. Before long, the whole town was gathered outside the door. Those whom he cured, who were variously afflicted, were many, and so were the demons he expelled. But he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. Rising early the next morning, he went off to a lonely place in the desert. There he was absorbed in prayer. And then the apostles track him down. But our Lord gives us an important lesson, and that's why we're here today. We need to retreat, to remove ourselves from the regular hustle, bustle, the responsibilities, the schedules of life, and really just give some good time to God. And that's what I hope that this morning will be for you all. So as Daniel mentioned, we're going to have three talks. It's a little bit fluid because I don't have these things necessarily timed out to the minute or the second. I hope, though, that in between the talks that you don't just chat, although chatting can be very good, but go to the chapel or the church to pray, to think about what we've discussed or talked about here, because that's the key. We want it to settle in. So it's not the idea of just listening to me and maybe one ear out the other, but it's really taking, hopefully, with the Holy Spirit's help, those inspirations, applying them to your own life, and then by the end of the day, maybe coming to some good resolution for the rest of Lent. So with that, let's get started. So we have as our theme, the mission of martyrdom. Now when Father Hezekiah and Daniel asked me about this, I thought, well, that's an interesting theme for Lent. And he wanted to talk about me to talk about martyrdom. He also, Father Hezekiah said, well, that's the anniversary of the 40 martyrs of Sebast. I thought, who? So anyway, the, but actually it's very interesting because this is where we begin. So we go back to the year 320. Now, the Roman Empire has been, at this time, united under two emperors. So we have Constantine, who takes control of the West at this time. He conquered in the year 312. And remember, Constantine and his co-emperor Licinius, who has control of the eastern side, issue the Edict of Milan, and they legalize Christianity. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden Christianity becomes the state religion, but we can now come out of the catacombs, the homes, and have our public faith. So that's good. And we know that Constantine and his mother, St. Helena, did much to promote the faith by preserving the Holy Land shrines, also the beautiful basilicas in Rome, like St. Peter's, St. Paul outside the walls and the like. But on the eastern side, where Licinius is co-emperor until the year 325, he begins another persecution. It seems like he's given into some of the pagan ways still. So in the province of Armenia, the town of Sebast. Here we have a Roman legion, the 12th legion. They're known as the Thundering Legion. So they were this very mighty, powerful force. There's 40 Christian soldiers. For whatever reason, the governor thought in celebration for something that everyone would offer a sacrifice to the pagan gods. 
These 40 soldiers refuse to do so. So they're brought before the governor and they're given the choice, well, offer the sacrifice or pay the consequences. At first, the governor wants to make it all very appealing, so he promises them promotions, awards of various kinds, and so on. They refuse. So then the governor says, well, these are all the tortures that I can afflict upon you. They still refuse. So the governor said, we will condemn you then. Well, it's March, it's cold, it's in a mountainous area, and there's a large pond, I'd say more like a lake, it's frozen over. So the torture of martyrdom would be that they would be stripped naked and put in the center of this frozen pond and left there to die of the conditions. To entice them to renounce their faith, the governor set up this like little bath, like you could say almost like a little sauna, hot tub thing, so that if they wanted to, they could leave the pond and offer the sacrifice to the pagan gods, and then they could jump in the hot path, bath and everything would be happy once again. Well, the leader of the 40 soldiers said, Lord, we are 40 who are engaged in this combat. Grant that we may be 40 crowned and not one be wanting to the sacred number. So they took off their garments and they willingly went to the center of the frozen lake. Sadly, as time went on, one of the soldiers gave in and he left to offer the sacrifice. But he was struck dead before he could do so. At this point though, the soldiers who were standing guard, one of them had a vision. And this one guard saw that around these 40, now 39, in the center of the lake, there were all these angels and others surrounding them, encouraging them, supporting them. It was like a mystical experience. Well, that soldier who was standing guard took off all his garments, all his weaponry, and he joined them. It was really like an instant profession of faith. And he would stay with them. By the next day, a good number of them had died from hypothermia and the conditions, so the governor ordered the rest of them to be burned alive and go on from there. One of the youngest, the youngest soldier was being taken off. He was barely alive because of the hypothermia. And his mother, who was a widow, approached him and said, Go, son, go. Proceed to the end of this happy journey with your companions, that you may not be the last of them that shall present themselves before God. Imagine a mother encouraging her son to continue on to face this martyrdom. Well, he died, but here we have the 40 martyrs of Sebast. Of course, when we think about our church, this is just one story of many. Granted, we have, prior to the legalization in 312, many stories of martyrs. We think of Perpetua, Felicity, so many that we recount in the first Eucharistic prayer. Even we think of the apostles. All of them, save St. John who survived the means of martyrdom, were martyrs. But then we think of every age since then we've had martyrs in our church. 
But let's think about the importance of it. If we go to the book of Revelation, which many good scripture scholars today, because of new evidence as well as just the testimony of the early church fathers, would say definitely is written by St. John the Apostle prior to the year 70. So we don't need to get into the whole scripture scholarship controversy, but looking at the papyrology and so on, St. John wrote this before the year 70 in the fall of Jerusalem. But St. John, beginning in chapter 4, has this vision of heaven. It's a wonderful, spectacular vision. He sees there the throne of God the Father. And then there's 24 elders, the 12 patriarchs, patriarchs and we have the 12 apostles. There they are. But St. John sees the angels and so many other celestial beings. And he asks then the question, if we go to verse or to chapter 7, he has in beginning in verse 13, then one of the elders asked him, who are these people all dressed in white and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you should know better than I. He then told me, These are the ones who have survived the great period of trial. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It is this that was brought them before God's throne. Day and night they minister to him in his temple. He who sits on the throne will give them shelter. Never again shall they know hunger or thirst nor shall the sun or its heat beat down on them. For the Lamb on the throne will shepherd them. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So here's this beautiful vision of all these angels and saints. We have the throne with the Heavenly Father, and then we have these martyrs that are dressed in this brilliant white holding the palm branches of victory. And then there's on the altar in front of the throne, the Lamb, who is Jesus. What a spectacular vision. But it gives us great hope. But it shows that these are the witnesses of faith. Now, could St. John have picked out particular people? Maybe so. When we think about it, by the year 70, St. Stephen the Martyr. And there's St. James the Greater, who was the first of the apostles martyred in year 42. He may have seen Peter and Paul because they were martyred in the year 66. And who knows who else? But what a spectacular vision of heaven to see that even though they had died in this life, maybe awful deaths, here they are in heaven, in glory. So martyrdom. When we look at our church's teachings then, going to the Second Vatican Council in the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church. We read in Article 42, Since Jesus, the Son of God, manifested his charity by laying down his life for us, so too no one has greater love than he who lays down his life for Christ and his brothers. From the earliest times then, some Christians have been called upon and some will always be called upon to give the supreme testimony of this love to all men, but especially to persecutors. 
The church, then, considers martyrdom as an exceptional gift and as the fullest proof of love. By martyrdom, a disciple is transformed into an image of his master by freely accepting death for the salvation of the world, as well as his conformity to Christ in the shedding of his blood. Though few were presented such an opportunity, nevertheless all must be prepared to confess Christ before men. They must be prepared to make this profession of faith even in the midst of persecutions, which will never be lacking to the church in following the way of the cross. Now, this was written during the time of the Second Vatican Council. But keep in mind, so the Second Vatican Council was 1962 through 1965. The church had just witnessed the horrible persecution during the time of Nazism, and then also what was going on prior through the Soviet Union, spread of communism, and what was continuing on. So this was very real when the church fathers wrote this. And so in the Catechism, in Article 2473, we read, Martyrdom is the supreme witness given to the truth of the faith. It means bearing witness even unto death. The martyr bears witness to Christ who died and rose, to whom he is united by charity. He bears witness to the truth of the faith and of Christian doctrine. He endures death through an act of fortitude. In that description in the Catechism, we find emphasized the word witness. And that's really what martyr means. It means witness, to be a witness of faith. And it says to be a witness of Christ, a witness to his truth. And part of that truth, then, is known through what the church teaches, to be true to the faith of our church. Well, given that, we're challenged. How good are we at being a witness of our faith? Because we can't separate what the church teaches, whether we think of what's in sacred scripture or what's in the catechism, from who Christ is. Because Christ is the perfection of revelation. And Christ is known through sacred scripture, and we could say simply, like the catechism of the church, the sacred tradition of our church. So we always have to think then, am I that witness? Now, in the legalization period, St. Jerome made a distinction. He said there is red martyrdom, but now there's also white martyrdom. So prior to legalization, we were very familiar with red martyrdom, people who actually gave their lives, dying to this life to gain everlasting life, saints who endured awful, awful persecution, tortures, but did not renounce their faith. So that's the blood martyrdom. But then there's the white martyrdom, the white martyrdom where now people would live a life taking on those evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, obedience, this was the whole beginning then of the monastic movement. The idea of dying to yourself in this life to live totally for Christ. But I think we could expand that in our world today. So if we look at our world today, there is blood martyrdom. And never forget that. So if we go to just some statistics. The Pew Research Center in 2013 
said that Christians were penalized or harassed in various ways in 102 countries in our world. The British Secret Service, MI6, in 2007 reported 200 million Christians in 60 countries face some form of restriction on their faith. The, an organization called Open Door USA reports that 90,000 Christians were killed in 2016. Do you ever hear that on the news? No. Center for Studies on New Religions said 600 million Christians are prevented from practicing the faith because of intimidation, forced conversion, bodily harm, and death. Do you ever hear that? No. But we know, especially when we think of what's happening right now in Iraq, Syria, Egypt, Pakistan, Christians are being persecuted and martyred. So the reality of blood martyrdom is real. It should be for us. When we think of just this past summer, a priest was offering mass in France in the Normandy section, and two ISIS guys came in, slit his throat. Makes me think, that's France. When could that happen here? So in a way, all of us have to be prepared for that idea of blood martyrdom. But we also have to be prepared for the white martyrdom. That's something we live. Now, I don't mean this in the sense like St. Jerome began with the distinction of like the monastic communities and so on, because you all aren't called to live that way. But the white martyrdom is living your life in such a way in this world that you're known as a Christian, that you speak the truth, that you're willing to bear witness for the faith. That's the white martyrdom that you all are called to live, myself too. But I'm an obvious target because I'm a priest. But you all as lay people who, whether in your home or you think of your neighborhood or your place of work, you're called to bear witness to your faith. Not to disguise it, not to hide it, but to live it. To bear witness to it. To speak the truth. To really give that best example that you can of being a Christian and a member of the Catholic Church. We know that if you say you're a Christian today, there are those that will consider you some kind of a Neanderthal, oh, he's a Christian, or maybe they immediately say, oh, well, now you're a homophobe, or an Islamophobe, or some kind of phobe, and so on. We know that. Admit that you're a Christian, and the news media will attack you, but that we're called to be a true Christian. We're called to live the life of Christ. Now, to do so, we have to have great fortitude. Remember, Jesus said, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are those persecuted for holiness' sake, the reign of God is theirs. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of slander against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets before you in the very same way. So we have to live the beatitude and recognize that if we are a witness for the faith, 
we will find joy. That seems sort of strange for some because how can finding martyrdom bring about joy? You know, finding yourself on a frozen lake bring joy. But you're true to yourself and you're true to Christ. And that takes great strength to see beyond this life and see and have the hope for an everlasting life. So one of the keys here for this first meditation as we think about being these witnesses is to examine in our own life the virtue of fortitude. We have too many weak Christians, Christians in name only. We have too many cowardly Christians today. And I'm not just throwing out little judgments here and so on. But the challenge is that you and I are called to have great fortitude in living our faith. Remember, fortitude is one of the four cardinal virtues. So we have prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Those aren't necessarily Christian as such because Aristotle, the pagan Greek philosopher 300 years before Christ, talked about those same virtues. But we do look at them as Christians as moral virtues that are enhanced by grace, that we can live with great grace. So it's not just me trying to be one with great fortitude, but I'm also relying on God's grace, particularly that actual grace that enlightens the mind, strengthens the will, so that I can do what is good. To know the good, to do the good. So fortitude really is that strength that we need to face a situation, do the good, and even endure hardship, suffering, even death, but with great hope. That's the key. And maybe that's the big, that is the difference between Christian fortitude and Aristotle fortitude. Because we do believe that no matter what happens, we have the hope of everlasting life. So what gives us that charge of grace, in a sense, is also that hope. But the one who has fortitude wants to pursue what is the good. The one who, is, who has fortitude wants to live by the truth and to defend that truth, especially when falsehood may be being preached or falsehood is being taught. The good Christian with fortitude wants to promote justice, even at the sense of sacrifice, when he sees injustice. So the unjust law has to be changed. It took great fortitude, for instance, for Abraham Lincoln, who was a very good Christian man, who learned how to read by reading the Bible, which would be very good for all politicians today, but <laughs> learned how to read by reading his Bible, who really took the stand against slavery. And it wasn't for political advantage at all. He knew that unjust law had to change. And we could think of many great examples. But Christians, when they see something that's unjust, want to fight for justice. So fortitude is going to bear those hardships. Now, of course, when we think of fortitude, we could also add four what I call sub-virtues. One is magnanimity. Magnanimity means great-souledness. So 
I think of magnanimity as having great ideas to do good for God and to have great effort to accomplish those ideas. So when we think of the saints, it takes great fortitude for someone like a St. Francis Xavier to leave happy Spain and Portugal and go to India, the Philippines, Japan, and then dies off the coast of China to evangelize people. That takes great fortitude, but that's a generous spirit too. Or recently we celebrated the feast of St. Catherine Drexel. What great fortitude to take your fortune to be one of the wealthiest women in the world at the time and in our country and use that fortune to found a community of religious sisters dedicated to taking care of the African-American and Native American people who in the late 1800s, as we know, were especially persecuted and had disadvantage. But that's magnanimity. You know, that's what we need to have in our fortitude, to have this great idea that I can do something great for God. Now, it might not be necessarily going off to the Far East and being a missionary. It's just blooming where you're planted. It might be saying, I'm going to have the best family. I'm going to really fight hard and put my whole effort into having the best Christian family or the best Christian marriage. If it's at your, let's say, place of work, you own a business, I'm going to really have a Christian business not just give in to the economics of it all, not just give in to the strict legal code, but be a real Christian employer. So think in your own lives. How can you practice this virtue of magnanimity? Second sub-virtue would be that of patience. Very important. Comes from the Latin patior, which means to suffer. A person with fortitude is willing to endure that hardship and to endure that hardship for that greater good. Here again, I think it takes great fortitude for a family to take care of an elderly relative who might be having difficulties. It's not easy, you know, with those of us who have very elderly relatives to always be patient and to care for that person. Or I've known families who take care of someone who's terminally ill. They don't just dump them in some institution, they take care of them. For instance, uh, Daniel mentioned Father Shears coming for confession, and he was my assistant for four years at Our Lady of Hope, fine young priest, but his family took in an elderly great-aunt. So this elderly great-aunt wasn't even a blood relative. She was an aunt-in-law, and she was the second wife of the blood uncle. So he had, his wife had died, he married again, so you have old Aunt Vi, who's just a relative by law. Well, her stepchildren wanted nothing to do with her. And they took her in and for two years cared for her. She started suffering from the dementia, and she needed the nursing care, and they hired the nurse. They set up in their, what should have been their dining room, a little like hospital room for her. But that took great patience on the part of that whole family. They suffered with her. 
The beauty is that after about a year and a half, she became a Catholic. She was an Episcopalian, but she became a Catholic. And towards the end of her life, she said to Father Scheer, the best thing I ever did was to become a Catholic. Now, would that have happened without the patient fortitude of that family who cared for her so much? I don't think so. She would have been off in maybe some institution. Maybe they would have taken her to DC to be euthanized. I don't know. You know, they have doctor-assisted suicide now. So who knows? This is the world we live in. But patient fortitude. Another sub-virtue is perseverance. Perseverance is keeping on the path, right? Continuing to work steadfastly, to fight steadfastly. It takes desire, determination, dedication. If we want to be a saint, it takes perseverance. If we want to fight the good fight, as St. Paul says, it takes perseverance. So it takes that desire, determination, dedication. It really means a commitment each day. You know, every day when we wake up, we ought to be really asking for the grace to have that fortitude to live our faith, to have that desire, and then to go forth with that dedication and that diligence to really continue on doing what we need to do to have that determination, I want to be a saint. And we all know that's a constant struggle. It's a constant struggle. None of us here can just say, I'm ready to be canonized. But really, the ones who have fortitude are the ones who stand in the confessional line. Because it takes great courage to humble ourselves, confess our sins, receive that grace, and start again. That takes courage takes fortitude. It's that desire, dedication, determination. Then the last sub-virtue is meekness. And meekness doesn't mean being like a floor mat. Meekness is having that self-control. Going back to the Beatitudes, remember Jesus said, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the land. So a meek person is able to control those passions, control those desires, not just give in to anger, like you imagine those 40 martyrs in Sebastopol, Armenia. You can imagine, you know, they could easily give into maybe cursing the persecutors, maybe praying for their death, whatever it may be, maybe being miserable to each other. They had great self-control. That's meekness. And we need to have meekness. We're never going to win converts if we just get irrational or if we lose our temper, if we just go off and have one of these shouting matches. You know, nobody listens then. We have to have that control, that meekness. So put them all together. This is what fortitude is. But notice, too, that fortitude, while it is that cardinal moral virtue, it's also a gift of the Holy Spirit for good reason. We need the Holy Spirit. At the Last Supper, Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father for his apostles. And he told his apostles that he would ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit, whom he called the Advocate. So the one who stands in there with us and for us. Jesus said, I will give you the Holy Spirit, who's the Spirit of truth, so that you will know all truth, 
you'll be enlightened to the truth. So our Lord didn't expect these apostles to do it on their own. He was going to send and pour forth the Holy Spirit. So when we think about this great gift or this, this virtue of fortitude, it's not just doing it on our own and even just, we could say, with the basic grace of God, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. Remember even Jesus said, don't worry what you need to say, the Holy Spirit will speak through you. Oftentimes, inspirations will come so that we can defend our faith, bear witness to the faith in really a supernatural way, and that's because of the Holy Spirit. When I think of, let's say, those 40 martyrs of Sebast, that's incredible. You know, a poor little human being, I think, I can only hope that I would have the fortitude to do what they did. Or you think of so many other saints who suffered awful martyrdom. I can only hope. But the Holy Spirit will give us the fortitude. And we should never forget that. So pray for the Holy Spirit to come. I'm sure all of us here, looking at the age group, we've received confirmation. What a beautiful sacrament. The confirmation gives us the fullness of those gifts, including fortitude. The key here is, too, that we always have to be on guard because the devil would like to sway us and make us cowardly in three ways. One is through fear. It would be easy to live in fear. Fear of ISIS, fear of terrorism, fear of not being popular at work because we make our Christian values known, easier to keep quiet. Fear of maybe offending a family member who's gone astray, antagonistic towards the faith, and so on. We could so easily live in fear. But Jesus always was saying, don't be afraid. Always. And there are many times when I've read in different spiritual books that if we really looked through sacred scripture, Old Testament, New, 365 times, either the Lord in the Old Testament or Jesus in the New Testament or someone like Angel Gabriel is saying, don't be afraid. And maybe that's because there's 365 times in the Bible because we have 365 days in the year and we need that reminder every day. Don't be afraid. Don't let the devil put fear in our lives. Secondly, don't give in to discouragement. And I have to admit, sometimes I fight that because you look at this world and you know that I've got kids in a grade school and some of them don't come to Mass on Sunday. Not their fault, it's the parents' fault. Or you have kids that make confirmation, you don't see them again. Kids that make First Communion, you don't see them again. You have parents get their kids baptized, you don't see them again. And I can say, what am I doing here? It could be discouragement. But it's not my church, not my mission. Devil's not going to discourage me. Have to have fortitude. Have to continue on. The mission is Christ. Christ's church will survive. So we can't give in to fear, can't give in to discouragement. And for you all, I know families sometimes, I'll have a parent come up to me and say, you know, I did my best. 
made a sacrifice, sent the kids to the Catholic schools, tried to have a good Catholic home, and two out of three kids don't practice the faith anymore. One could get discouraged. Don't give up. Let God do his work. Ask the Holy Spirit to intervene. Have that strength. The mission will be accomplished. And then last little problem that the devil likes to play with us is doubt. Lots of doubt. And in our world today, we have this idea that technology can, can solve everything. And we could easily give so much time to technology. You know, a parishioner, because I had a flip phone, <laughs> bought me this diabolical device. <laughs> and I really don't even carry it around that much. But it's a nice, you know, it's interesting. But how much, when you think about people that have these, you see them all the time, right? And this thing can become our little god. And we could think, well, technology is going to solve all our problems. It's not. And the technology, it's like anything. You could say, well, is there really the supernatural? Is there really God? What about the sacraments? Things like that. You know, the technology, for all of the good, can become almost the idol that takes us away from the supernatural, the goodness of God, and how God wants to share his life with us now. So always be on guard. So with fortitude, think about how you live that virtue today. And remember, it's the magnanimity, the great soldness, the patience, bearing those hardships, Enduring, really, the sufferings of others, even. It's the perseverance, having that desire, determination, dedication. And then also that we have the meekness, that self-control. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you overcome any fear or discouragement or doubt that you may be struggling with right now. So this would be wonderful. To give you an example, and then we'll conclude this little section here, is that I mentioned the persecution of the faithful in the Middle East. But Patriarch Ignatius Yusuf III of the Syriac Catholic Church of Antioch, which is Syria, came to the Knights of Columbus Convention in the summer of 2016, and he told this story. And granted, his church takes in a larger territory than just Antioch and so on. So he said that in 2003, there were about 2 million Christians in Iraq. Now there's less than 300,000 because of the war. And then on the night of August 6th to 7th, 2014, 40% of all Christians still living in Iraq, that's about 150,000, were expelled by ISIS. They fled to Kurdistan for safety, and they have to live in makeshift tents and refugee centers and so on. He said in Syria, 500,000 Christians have fled. More than 140 churches and ancient monasteries have been desecrated, abandoned, or destroyed. Some of these go back to the earliest times of our church. He also told a story about how 10 years ago, one of his priests, a father, Douglas L. Bazi, was kidnapped by these ISIS people, and he was confined. His parish was in Baghdad, had about 2,600 families, now it's less than 300. 
So he's kept in this, you could say, cell, a room. At times he was starved, went without water. Sometimes he had no light. Then sometimes he was beaten. Matter of fact, he's beaten frequently. They knocked out all of his teeth. One of his captors was named Ferris, F-A-R-I-S. And Ferris, after beating Father Douglas, asked, do you hate me? And Father, Fer Father Douglas said, no, I love you. Jesus tells us to love even our enemy. And what if I kill you, said Ferris? I will still love you. And so what? If you kill me, I hope Jesus, who died and rose from the dead, will take me to heaven to live in his father's house. Then another time, about a week later, after another beating, Ferris asked Father Douglas, do you hate me? No, I love you. I forgive you. And I hope one day you and I will be able to talk as friends and share tea. And Ferris just sort of scoffed and said, you forgive me? You Christians are strange people. The next week, after another beating, this time Ferris took Father Douglas's small little Bible, mostly the New Testament, and he started flipping through it. And he came across, like John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not to condemn, but to give everlasting life to those who believe. Then he flipped through and he came to John's first epistle, and it said, God is love, and those who love God abide in God, and God abides in him. He flipped through and he came across Matthew, and he read Jesus saying, bless your persecutors, love your enemies. And with that, something clicked. Now, Father Douglas was ransomed by the Knights of Columbus and released. Ferris escaped, and he went to one of the refugee camps. Keep in mind that because of the tension, they pretty much segregate Christians from the Muslims, because even in these camps, there's radical Muslims that hate the Christians. So poor Ferris is in this Muslim side of the camp, but he wants to know more. And he meets a Christian family, and the father's name is Abraham. And eventually, asking questions, he becomes a Christian. He's baptized. And he said, I remember the day when I found Jesus and was baptized. I think about how my life was before, how it was all a mess. My life really started after I met Abraham, and he introduced me to Christ. Now, my biggest grief is the people around us who have no life because they do not know Jesus. He continued on. Jesus is God. Of course, it's worth it. I feel sorry for everyone who doesn't know Jesus. When people persecute me or talk about me badly, I don't feel sorry for myself. I always feel sorry for them. What attracted me to Jesus in the first place, loving your enemies, forgiving your enemies, and praying for enemies, I did not find that before. So my brothers and sisters, we're going to pause, take our little break, and ask yourself, am I really a martyr in the sense of being a witness for Christ? Am I a witness in such a way that I can really live the faith with fortitude? And that includes the 
meekness, the magnanimity, the perseverance, and the patience. Do I have to dispel any fears or doubts or discouragement? But ask yourself, do I live my life in a way that whether I'm at home or at work, the neighborhood, the grocery store, someone might look at me and say, there's a Christian. Or do we live our life in a way where someone would say, I want to be a Christian too. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.